Good evening from Washington, where reports are streaming in of U.S. strikes against Iranian-backed groups across the Middle East. Here's what we know right now. More than 85 targets were hit with numerous aircraft that included long-range bombers flown from the United States. The airstrikes employed more than 125 precision munitions. The strikes in Iran and Syria struck seven facilities that included command and control operations, intelligence centers, rockets, and missiles that were linked to Iran's militant groups. This comes in retaliation for drone strikes that killed three American troops in Jordan last weekend. I'm Chris Steyerwald. Blake Berman is off tonight. I'm joined by our panel tonight. Lance Trover, he is a former spokesperson for former Republican presidential candidate Doug Burgum. Eliana Johnson, she's the editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon. Michael Starr Hopkins, he's a Democratic strategist. And Brad Howard, also a Democratic strategist. And joining us remotely is Mick Mulvaney, former White House chief of staff to President Trump and a News Nation contributor. The Hill on News Nation starts right now. Let's go straight away to Kelly Meyer at the White House, who joins us with the latest. Kelly, what do we know right now? Hey, Chris, well, we are just getting new information and new details on just the insight, what went into these retaliatory attacks that took place today. We got the details from U.S. Central Command, uh, a statement from President Biden, as well as the Defense Secretary, and now we are hearing more from White House officials. So I'm going to read what I have the latest for you from that. They were saying tonight that there were three facilities in Iraq that were struck and four in Syria. They were saying that these targets were clear evidence were used in the uh, connected to the attack on those U.S. service members that were killed on Sunday. The DOD, they say, is in the early stages of assessment, but they believe these attacks were successful. They say initial indications are that we hit exactly what we meant to hit. Some of the takeaways from this is that the response began tonight, they say, but it isn't going to end tonight. They also say that the U.S. does not seek conflict with Iran and that they alerted the Iraqi government prior to these strikes. They say that these targets were selected specifically to degrade and disrupt the IRGC and stop them from continuing these attacks on U.S. forces. Uh, They say they are not looking for war with Iran here. Chris. Kelly, in your reporting over the past week, uh, we followed the narrative about the White House trying to determine whether these were Iran-sanctioned, Iran-directed, whether these were rogue operations. Do we think we have any more clarity now uh, that we've seen these attacks undertaken? You know, they've said all along that the the road always leads back to Iran here. But what they targeted specifically tonight were Iranian-backed militia groups, uh, the the facilities used by them and what they believe were used in those attacks on U.S. forces. Uh, As you said, they've been telegraphing this week uh, that they had a response ready. We just didn't know when or where exactly that was going to happen. But they did also telegraph that this was going to be a multi-tiered effort, that it was going to take out more capabilities than they have in the past, and that is exactly what we are seeing here today, a a massive effort uh, taking out 85 targets we saw in that release from the U.S. Central Command. 
The airstrikes employed more than 125 precision munitions, taking out facilities from intelligence centers uh, to UAV facilities, all targeting uh, facilities of militia groups, they say, and their IRGC sponsors who facilitated attacks against U.S. and coalition forces. And the biggest takeaway tonight, Chris, is that these aren't ending tonight, that this will continue. This is the largest response that we've seen thus far from the Biden administration to the attacks that we've been counting over the last several months. This, of course, different as it resulted in the death of those three U.S. service members. Kelly Meyer, thank you very much. Okay, Eliana Johnson, when I want to know what's going on in the national security world, you are one of the people that I always turn to, so I'm very glad that you're with us on the panel tonight. You're very well sourced uh, in this stuff. What are you hearing and what are you thinking? Well, you know, what's striking to me is um, if you look at, take a step back and look at what the Biden administration wanted when they came into office, which was to revive a nuclear deal with Iran and where we've ended up. Um, very, very far apart. The Biden administration came in saying, we're going to revive the nuclear deal and we're going to park Iran over on one side. We're going to focus on Asia. Um, they wanted to do the same thing with Russia. Look how that's turned out as well. Um, instead, what we have is Iran flexing its muscles in the Middle East from Gaza to the Red Sea to Jordan to Iraq. And the Biden administration, they have said the one thing they did not want after the October 7th attack in Israel was a wider regional war. And that's precisely what they've gotten, despite their declarations that they do not seek war with Iran. Um, It looks like they may be beginning to realize that Iran seeks war with the United States and it can't it can no longer be avoided. Michael, um, the uh, the Goldilocks effort here is pretty obvious, right? Uh, The administration took a week to try to find out. Uh, I'm sure it was an intelligence gathering effort, but also what is the proportional response that answers uh, domestic critics in the United States that say that, uh, including the uh, nearly presumptive Republican nominee Donald Trump and others who say that Biden is not doing enough, that he's not gone strong enough, but at the same time, uh, critics in his own party that say you're going to get us into another war, this is another escalation. How does this strike you as an effort to find a middle way? Well, on one hand, you don't want to have a response that's going to exacerbate tensions. But on the other hand, you don't want to look weak, especially when you're going up against someone in Donald Trump, who's the presumptive GOP nominee. Uh, The president knows he's going to get criticized from the right and get criticized from the left. So this is a tough situation. And so I think what he wants to do is make sure that at least he's upsetting everyone. That way he can argue that he's being independent and strong and not capitulating. Brad Howard, you were recently in Israel. You've just been back from the Middle East for a week or so. And um, the international politics of this are very interesting because Joe Biden is obviously frustrated with Benjamin Netanyahu and obviously frustrated with what he had hoped would be a quicker effort uh, against Hamas. But at the same time, here the United States seems to be being drawn more deeply into the regional conflict. What's your assessment? Yeah, I think October 7th, I think fundamentally has affected the future of Israel and the minds and the politics within the, the country and the U.S.-Israeli relationship. And in particular, what a lot of Israelis, I heard I was there for last week and we went down to the, Gaza, the border of the Gaza Strip and saw these kibbutzes that were raided on October 7th where people were murdered, raped and drugged back into Gaza and are still remaining hostage uh, there in the Gaza Strip. They are in awe of President Biden and his support for Israel. Everywhere you go, they're just so grateful for that speech he made in the days afterward where he encouraged anyone who else may be seeking to attack Israel, don't. 
because what we were worried about was Hezbollah from the north, um, and then, of course, the situation in the West Bank getting worse. And part of that effort was to move the carrier groups closer to Israel to protect them. But once you start moving the carrier groups in, to your point, they, they may have wanted a, to avoid a regional conflict, but it was almost inevitable the moment Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. Chris, you mentioned a proportional response. That's what the Biden administration has been doing. Iranian proxies have been droning and attacking American troops. Um, They've injured hundreds of American troops and shipping, disrupting shipping in the Red Sea. That is not working. The only thing that is going to knock Iran back on its heels is a wildly disproportionate response right now. Um, And that is what the Biden administration seems reluctant to do. Okay, Lance, um, I don't want to be cynical, but... You know the energy business. Uh, you work with Governor Burgum, uh, an energy forward guy. It's Friday evening. Now, if you don't want to disrupt world markets mm-hmm. and you don't yeah. want to send oil futures uh, hurtling forward, <laughs> a really good time, and I'm sorry to be this way, a really good time to do something like this is after markets have closed or as markets are closing on Friday. Uh, am, am I being too cynical? No, absolutely not. And I, I want to build off <laughs> something Eliana said. I think what, what we're, I, th- I suspect people are going to rally around here. We have dead soldiers overseas. We have injured soldiers overseas. But the question I think voters are going to have as we move forward is how did we get here? And beyond the Iran nuclear deal, this is an administration that gave $6 billion for five hostages, started easing sanctions on Iran. And I think as we move forward, that's the question voters are going to have, especially a very war-weary public that we have right now. They're going to be saying, how did we get here? And there's only been one person that's been making these decisions, and it's Joe Biden. All right, wait, no, wait, wait, wait. We'll, do, we'll do it. But, uh, but right now, I want to get to News Nation senior national security contributor, General, uh, Lieutenant General Richard Newton. General, we're grateful for your time tonight. Put this, if you will, use your many years of expertise to put this in perspective. How big of an endeavor are we talking about here? Is this symbolic? Is this aggressive? Uh, how, how do you characterize this? Well, Chris, uh, good evening to you and the panel. Uh, I would characterize it as a, a good first step on night one. I've been advocating for several weeks that we not just go after uh, uh, just one or two counterattacks. Uh, as I think Eliana made a point, we, we've actually had American forces attacked over 165 times since October 17th and have responded in a rather timid fashion by, by the, the commander-in-chief. What we're seeing tonight, and I would hope for, is that this is the beginning of what I would call a campaign approach to this, that it not just be uh, you know one and done here with 85 targets struck with 125 precision weapons, but it'd be beginning of a campaign that not only goes against the Iranian proxies, but it also, uh, in effect, goes against Iran. We're in conflict with, with Iran. Iran has taken over a significant leadership role in the, in the Mideast. They're still the largest exporter of terrorism. We saw that with Hamas uh, on October 7th and so forth. So there's a, the broader picture here is strategic. And I also want to bring up your point. You talked about oil futures. All instruments of national power are in play here. One of them happens to be economic and financial and certainly commodities, why not? But then there's also uh, international you know, you know, di- diplomacy and so forth. But what we're focused on now, obviously, is the military card. And I believe that we've started uh, what hope is a beginning of a significant air campaign here and, and perhaps uh, with special operations that go after 
the Iranian Republican Guard forces that are training these proxy groups, Iranian paramilitary forces, that the that Quds forces that are also training these these proxies that we not only go after targets in Iraq and Syria as we did tonight, but we also go after Yemen and elsewhere. So this is going to be, uh, again, my hope is a, a long campaign uh, to restore American leadership as well as American, not defensive initiative, but offensive initiative. What do we know about the munitions here uh, and how this went down? I, uh, I understand there were bombers that came all the way from the United States that were part of the attack. I assume that the carrier force in the area, how, how would a strike like this look? Well, it'll be a combined strike uh, of, uh, as you mentioned, there's USS Eisenhower Carrier Strike Group that's been steaming in the vicinity of the Gulf of Aden and, and the Red Sea and so forth. You have launches of FN-18 strike fighters and so forth. Uh, the bombers mentioned, I commanded the B-1 bombers, uh, you know, from the, from the United States. And these bombers, uh, my sources tell me, actually launched from the United States, attacked targets on, and it really demonstrates the B-1 bomber, by the way, is one of the most effective weapon systems in the world and can carry multiple munitions. But it also demonstrates the world why the B-1 bombers, why from the United States, it demonstrates global capabilities from the United States and that we're dead serious now, at, you know, finally here in, in early February, now that we have three brave American soldiers killed in action in Tower 22. And so we're able to, to reach out and, and touch these and, and kill these targets. Uh, and we've demonstrated that on night one. We'll see how it goes for the, what I hope to be the rest of the campaign. But the significance of this is with the measure of air power and sea-based air power, I also would expect uh, in, in the next uh, coming hours or even days, the use of uh, cyber capabilities to, to uh, mm. again, support uh, the Iranian uh, capabilities in terms of communicating with their proxies. I would also anticipate perhaps with special operations to go after some of the uh, Iranian Republican Guard Corps that are in the field outside of Iran uh, to go after their leadership and so forth. And so there's, I, I believe we have to take Secretary Austin at his word. This is a multi-tiered approach. Uh, this is just a bit the first layer of a tiered approach, I believe, that will hopefully reassert U.S., uh, uh, you know, again, forced to be uh, reckoned with in the Mideast. General, we, we're grateful for your time and for your expertise. Thank you very much. Okay, uh, Mick Mulvaney, I want to uh, for you to set the scene for us uh, inside a White House uh, when uh, an administration, when a president is contemplating something that the generals say it's going to work. It's going to be good. We know we can do this. We know it's going to be fine. We've got the firepower. We've got the capability. We're ready to go. We want to do it. But with the knowledge in the room, there in the situation room, that unintended consequences often follow uh, the best intentions and the best laid plans. Talk to us about the thinking. What's it like? It's pretty tense. There's no question. I was impressed by the way that the, the President Biden was actually at Dover because there'd be a temptation, I think, to want to be down in the situation room watching it. In, in many, many ways, we have the ability to see a lot of this in real time. Um, and certainly somebody was doing that. Chris, I think the best way to describe this would be an all-of-government um, effort. You, you, you know the national security folks are involved. You know the State Department's involved. Obviously, the Defense Department is involved. 
But my guess is if they're doing it properly, they're also getting the communications plan together. They're probably also getting their legislative affairs team in hand. While they don't tell Congress and they don't ask for permission, my guess is there was probably communication with the big four, the majority leaders, minority leaders in both the House and the Senate. This is a big deal. This is not something that came together in the last couple of days. I've heard some of the criticisms. We'll talk about that maybe later. I think a lot of that is misplaced. It's not easy to do this. It's not quick to do this. Um, the fact that we could do it at all. There's only one country in the world that can do this, and that's not some sort of macho patriotism. This is a big deal, and it takes a couple of days at least to pull it together. So this is an all-of-government uh, uh, effect, and it looks so far like it's been successful, at least in this first phase. And uh, in, in terms of how you think the world will receive this, how you think markets will receive this, what's your expectation? You know, I, I, happen to, I happen to like what I've seen. I know there's some Republicans who've been critical. Um, again, you can be critical, I think, of the way that Biden has, has managed Iran up to this point. But I like what I see here today. And I hope that the folks around the world are seeing the same thing I'm seeing, which is you've projected a great deal of strength. You followed up on your word that you were going to, to, to extract a price for what uh, Iran, uh, Iran's proxies did to us. You did not cross over into Iran. I know that uh, Lindsey Graham was upset about that, but and I don't say this lightly. Lindsey would have been upset anything short of a full-scale invasion of Iran. Yeah. That's just the way he thinks. Um, but I think, I think this shows restraint. Uh, but also uh, sort of the establishing your, your ability to do this. Face it, the folks in Tehran tonight, even though we did not cross into the border of Iran, are not sleeping very well. Um, this, is, this, is, this is a high precision, very difficult thing to do. Um, and I think all of the nations of the world, especially Russia and China, are looking at this going, oh, that's right, maybe we forgot they could do that. We can't do this. Uh, and they can't. We're the only nation that can. All right, Mick, panel, stay with us. Uh, coming up. More reaction on the strikes targeting Iran uh, and their proxies. I'll talk with the former Pentagon official who's an expert on Iran in the Middle East. Uh, the Hill will be right back. We are closely following the retaliatory airstrikes happening in the Middle East. Joining us right now is former Pentagon official Michael Rubin. Uh, he is the director of policy analysis at the Middle East Forum, uh, the author of Seven Pillars, What Causes Instability in the Middle East, and he is also my colleague at the American Enterprise Institute. Michael, thank you for being with us tonight. Um, no one uh, has a deeper understanding about what makes Iran tick, how it works, uh, and how it will uh, might respond to this. What is your top line here? What's your, what, what, is, what do you observe? Well, I see an element of military virtue signaling on the American part. Yes, we needed to respond, but unlike Operation Desert Fox in 1998 under Bill Clinton, and unlike Donald Trump's um, killing of Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian general, in January 2020, we telegraphed our targets and even the dates of our attack ahead of time. That itself suggests to Iran that perhaps... Um, we just simply don't want to provoke them too much. We were trying to do everything, symbolically strike at targets in retaliation, but signal to Iran that, frankly, they can still get away with murder without fearing their own accountability. Is it a reasonable hope, though, that you, uh, or maybe it is a not unreasonable hope on the part of the president that he might find a solution that showed some resolve but didn't draw us into a deeper conflict? You think that that's, that's not what he's done here? You think Iran will be emboldened? 
Well, we still need to find out what the exact targets were. If we struck at Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps personnel outside of Iran, that's a very positive sign that Iran would be held to account. But if we only struck at Iraqi militias or Syrian militiamen, that itself is a very dangerous situation because the Iranians are more than willing to fight to the last Arab. As long as we're not targeting Iran, they're not going to feel the heat. Okay, Michael Rubin, we have a lot coming across the desk right now, so we have to move on. But thank you so much for being with us. Uh, We'll talk to you again soon. Uh, Okay, uh, panel. Uh, I uh, will go to the Democratic end of the table here. Um, So I think we heard from uh, Michael, basically, uh, an argument that says too little, too late. It'll actually make it worse. This will actually embolden uh, Iran more than it deters it. And that this was uh, a little bit of posturing. What do you say? I would say two things. Number one, the response isn't done. The the, the CINCOM has suggested more is on the way. Um, and it could look very differently than airstrikes um, and such. And I, I think the fact that the president did, or so far, has not ordered attacks within Iran, I think is a good sign because that's a line when you cross, it unleashes Pandora's box in the region. But the other, the other aspect of this is the Europeans are watching very closely because the Houthis down in Yemen are causing all kind of chaos among a very important trade route. So we're talking food, fuel, all these other factors that are here, the U.S. has got to make sure it's the dominant force in the region, but they've got to do it in a way that isn't perceived as overkill by the rest of the world. Eliana, here's what Joe Biden said. Uh, Our response uh, began today. It will continue at times and places of our choosing. The United States does not seek conflict in the Middle East or anywhere else in the world. But let all those who might seek to do us harm know this. If you harm an American, we will respond. If you if you attack inside Iran, you might provoke uh, an Iranian response, right? That you might do that. Where do you, how, how do you how do you uh, true that up? How do you find the, the middle way between that? Biden is talking tough. What would what do you say? Um, I don't have a view on attacking inside Iran, but I would note that Iran is um, murdering American servicemen and injuring American servicemen without us attacking inside of Iran. And I was hoping we'd get to the communications aspect of this. There are a couple of bits of it that I think are notable. One, Michael Rubin noted, which was that the Biden administration broadcast the countries and targets, essentially, they were going to hit um, before they hit them, which I thought was strange. It's not clear to me why you would give your enemies a heads up before you attack them. And the other aspect is this trope that we've heard over and over again, not just from the president, which you just read, but also from some of his spokesmen, which is that we don't seek war with Iran. We don't seek escalation. Um, It's fine to say that, but it needs to be coupled with we are absolutely prepared to bomb them back to the Stone Age if they come after us. And that part really seems to be missing. Um, they know we don't seek war. Uh, it's very clear to them that the Biden administration is, is scared. Um, and it's so much so that it's made me wonder, like, who is actually the powerful country here? Um, the Biden administration really needs to assert itself. And, and to Michael Rubin's point, um, this isn't about atta- attacking Iran. It's about going after Iranians. 
um, the IRGC outside of Iran. And that's what we need to watch for. And he, as he said, we don't know the answer. We yet. don't need to remind the international community, though, that we can bomb them to the Stone Age. Everybody knows that. But this is actually where I think Republicans... The, the willingness to do so. But this is where I think Republicans are, are better at communicating this than Democrats. Republicans appeal to emotion. Democrats appeal to intellect, which in situations like this is not what the American people want to hear. They want to hear that we're keeping them safe, that we will bomb the heck out of people if they do anything. And I and think... That took us down a dangerous road in Iraq. It does. So, I'm not yeah. saying that it's a smart route, but I'm saying it's how Democrats end up losing ground on this messaging. So, so Lance, you talked about how deterrence is essential and that basically, uh, if, I, if I'm parsing your argument correctly, uh, you said that because Donald Trump was scary to our enemies, they didn't attack us and that this is this is sort of an inevitable result that the killing of these Americans but how would you respond to something like this without escalating the situation? Because exactly. you also alluded to the war, war, the war weariness, and there's no willingness on the part of the American people right now that I can tell to be drawn into a deeper conflict. Well, look, I, uh, we're here in a situation, and I think, that, as I said, I think the country understands what we need to do here. We have to respond. We're in this situation. The point I was making is three years ago we weren't in this situation. Three years ago we weren't going after the Iran nuclear deal. We weren't giving $6 billion for five hostages and flooding and easing sanctions along the way. All of that money going out to these groups that are killing our soldiers overseas. And I think that's the question the public eventually will have. I think right now, yes, we have to respond. We need to be responsive. But eventually it's an election year. These are the questions I think voters are going to ask. How did we get here? And we can see how we got here. It's pretty clear. Mick Mulvaney told us earlier that he would be one of the lone voices of support um, in the Republican Party uh, of uh, what of what President Biden has undertaken here so far. And you and you have proven correct in that in that forecast. Um, so just to put just to put a bow on this discussion. How do you balance those things? You, you have, on the one hand, the desire to project American strength. And I think everybody hears what Michael Rubin was talking about, what Eliana was talking about, that the United States can't get pushed around. But at the same time, how do, how do you engage in that deterrence without creating the risk of a cornered Iran drawing the United States into a deeper conflict? Yeah. What's wrong with being critical of the Biden administration for how they got here? I think, I think Lance makes a really good point. You can be critical of the way they've handled the Iran nuclear deal. You can be critical of the way they've allowed Iran to build up their foreign currency reserves. You can be critical of a bunch of different things. I have, you can do a whole litany of them. But at the same time, what's wrong with waiting to have an opinion on this? What I just heard from the general was this was absolutely terrible. And by the way, I don't know the targets and I don't know what's coming next. Really? I mean, is, is, that, is that the conversation we're having here? Um, why can't we just say, OK, look, we, we wanted President Biden. Everybody wanted President Biden to do something. He did something. It seems to be relatively effective tonight. I mean, it's 85 targets and 125 munitions. That, that's a big deal. So why don't we just say, OK, this is fine. Let's see what happens next. Again, they're two different things. You can be critical of what's happened in the past and still look at this tonight and say, OK, I think this might be a good first step. Let, let's, why, can't, why do you always have to be either for the president or against the president? That's what I don't understand. Mick Mulvaney, the Via Media, guiding us through these, <laughs> these troubled paths. OK, we've got to take a break. But coming up, will the attacks have any impact on the Democratic uh, primary in South Carolina tomorrow? Maybe not, but uh, we are going to get a look at how the uh, Democratic electorate feels about Joe Biden these days, uh, especially in some key demographics. I will talk to a senior advisor to the Democratic National Committee next.
Welcome back. If you are just joining us, we are following breaking news as the United States strikes Iran-backed targets in Iraq and Syria following a drone strike that killed three American soldiers earlier this week. More than 85 targets were hit in these retaliatory strikes. The Defense Department says three facilities in Iraq and four in Syria were hit. The early battle assessment is that the strikes were successful. More than 125 munitions were used. We're learning that the strikes were planned around good weather, and those conditions were present today. All U.S. aircraft are now out of harm's way. Joining me now to discuss the domestic political implications is the senior advisor to the Democratic National Committee, Brad Woodhouse. Brad, thank you for being with us. Um, as Well, first, let's get your top-line sure. reaction here. Uh, when, when we, we uh, humble practitioners of, of politics, don't generally lean into these issues. Um, but as, as you see this going on, um, how do you think Democrats across the country are going to respond to what is a, no doubt an escalation of a conflict in a part of the world where not a lot of Democrats uh, want more U.S. resources deployed? Well, first of all, Chris, let me just tell you what I thought when I first uh, when I first heard this. And I think maybe many Democrats were thinking the same thing. You know, uh, the president today uh, was in was in Delaware uh, for to, with the families uh, greeting uh, the dignified remains uh, of the service members who uh, who were killed in these in these drone attacks. And at the same time, uh, he know, he knew or must have known uh, and had already approved uh, this retaliatory attack to respond uh, to respond uh, to these Iranian uh, Iranian proxies. Look, I believe uh, I believe that all Americans, including Democrats, uh, should support our troops, should support the families of the service members who were lost, support the uh, military leadership which planned this attack, and support uh, support the president. And I think uh, I think Democrats, uh, of course, I think a lot of uh, a lot of Republicans, a lot of Americans have not wanted to be mired in the you know mired in the Middle East. Many didn't want to stay. Uh, in Afghanistan, many have wanted to draw down uh, from uh, from Iraq, but I think they understand uh, that when critical U.S. interests are uh, at play, and when we're responding to an attack uh, on our service members, uh, some decisive uh, uh, response or some significant response is uh, is necessary. And look, I'm you know, we'll we'll as as Mick Mulvaney was saying, we you know, we'll see when the dust settles uh, what all this uh, what all this means. But the president. And this administration said earlier this week that they were going to respond. It'd be a tiered response. It would be significant. It wouldn't be a pinprick. And so I think I think they did that. And I believe Democrats will uh, will will support this. No Democrat, and not not many Americans, I think, want to see uh, prolonged conflict in the Middle East. But you also don't. Uh, you're not going to sit there and take it on the chin. Uh, Brad, we're going to get a chance to take a uh, temperature reading on the Democratic Party uh, and their feelings about the incumbent president uh, tomorrow in South Carolina. Uh, as you look ahead to that contest, what what do you what do you want to see for the president? Right. He's uh, he has a cup. He has some nominal opposition on the ballot in South Carolina. What are you looking most closely at? Turnout, uh, vote share. What 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 do you think will be the markers of success? What does what well, does a good day for the president look like in South Carolina tomorrow? Well, well, I, I think before a single vote is cast, we've had a great day in South Carolina by having the first in the nation uh, primary in in South Carolina. It was such a significant change uh, in uh, in the primary order 
uh, for for the Democrats, recognizing the importance of diversity uh, in this party, recognizing the importance of having people of color, in this case particularly uh, black people, be closer to the front of the line to determine this process instead of closer uh, closer to the back of the line. So I hope for a significant turnout. I mean, I, I have no doubt that uh, that the president and the and the vice president are going to perform. Uh, extraordinarily well. But I, what I hope is the people of South Carolina will recognize that this is an opportunity to make history. I mean, this, uh, you know, South Carolina was the state, it was the port of call uh, for delivering uh, slaves to America. It was where the first shot was fired in the Civil War. It was for the entirety of the time I was at the University of South Carolina in many years before and many years after that the Confederate flag flew on top of the Capitol Dome. And now, they're getting the first in the nation of primary, which will give so many African-Americans the opportunity to have their voice heard at the beginning of the process. Pro-Carolinian, Brad Woodhouse, here for all of the Carolinas. Brad Woodhouse, we thank you for your time. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Chris. Uh, okay. Good to see you. Good to see you. Okay, uh, panel, here's a question real quick. Does the Democratic base, and we'll start, we'll let the Republicans pick on you before you get to, before you get to answer, um, but does, the, does this represent a real problem for Joe Biden in terms of the potential for an escalating conflict and the tensions? Now, remember, at the end of the month, he's got Michigan coming up, right? He's got to go up to Michigan with a substantial Arab-American population up there that's mad at him. Does this pose a political problem for the president? I think it could. Um, you know, tomorrow's an open primary, so independents can can mm-hmm. jump in. I think that's what they're going to be watching really closely. I mean, bad day for Nikki Haley if the independents go over there for uh, Joe Biden. But I do think it is something they're probably watching closely. South Carolina's own, an, another pro-Carolinian, Mick Mulvaney. Uh, do, do, does this matter for the South Carolina primary? Uh, and what, do you, by the way, do you expect to see? Uh, I expect to see a dramatic uh, win for the for the president. We don't have independence in South Carolina. We don't register by party. Um, you get to choose which uh, primary you you vote in. So the folks will go up tomorrow and choose to vote in a Democrat or choose to vote in the Republican primary later in the month. But no, there's been no effort here to, to, for Dean Phillips or anybody else. Now the, the, the vice the president Biden is going to win ninety to ten tomorrow or uh, on Saturday, which is tomorrow, I guess. The- uh, the, the Mick, Mick has dropped the line. He has dropped the line. He's at a 90 to 10. Uh, the Palmetto Bluff. We will see how it goes. Okay. Just ahead on the Hill, reaction from Congress on the U.S. attacks. We'll be right back with that. Yeah, Chris, we're just going through some more details that we're getting from White House officials on just what went into this and some questions that remain here tonight, including will the strikes be continuing over the coming days or even weeks? And they responded that they wouldn't really say one way or another beyond, quote, additional actions would be coming or taken over the coming days. And they also added here that the U.S. hasn't had communication with Iran since the attack on Tower 22 in Jordan. When there were questions around why wasn't there a strike against targets inside Iran, they added again that they do not see conflict with Iran, that the targets they selected today were selected to degrade and disrupt the IRGC. 
They say the goal is to get these attacks to stop, and we do not seek war with Iran. I wanted to add here there was another question about once the operation is over, will you be confident that there will be no more strikes? On U.S. facilities. They say the U.S. does not want to see another single attack on U.S. personnel and facilities. We want them to stop, and we want them to stop now. Chris? Kelly, thanks very much. Uh, Panel, if if you'll indulge me, I want us to think about something uh, right now. So we take for granted that uh, our safety and security as Americans are protected by this massive and amazing military that we have that is uh, projects force all over the world and does all of these things. But let's look here at the faces. Let's look here at the faces and let's look here uh, at the names of these folks. Uh, William Rivers, uh, Sergeant William Rivers, Specialist Kennedy Sanders and Special- Specialist Brianna Moffat. And one of the realities, Eliana, of life today in these United States is we have an army that is in Africa, that is in the Middle East, that is in positions around the world. We have this ongoing struggle, and we're very prone to forget that these are dangerous jobs and people in dangerous places. Um, as you think about this and you think about American military commitments overseas, how do we balance that? How do, how do we put that in the, in the right perspective? Two of those fallen soldiers were um, in their mid-20s, which is sobering. Um, but I think one of the challenges is that most of us, you know, so many of us today have grown up um, without, in a time without major world wars. Um, we have a generation of children who were born after not the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And I think um, one of the imperatives and responsibilities that come out of that is to teach our kids that war is the natural state of affairs that has existed throughout human experience and what that was like for people, what that was like for the people who came before us, and that this is a unique time. The time we live in now is not normal. It is not what our ancestors lived in. Um, We have a responsibility to teach them history. Um, Unfortunately, uh, I don't have a lot of confidence that our schools are doing that particularly well. Okay. Uh, Going down the the road here, Michael, when... What should, what should Americans be thinking? Because ultimately, this effort today that we're talking about this evening is about protecting U.S. troops, right? That's the idea, is so that U.S. military forces can be around the world keeping the peace and that they can be safe. And the message from Biden is, if you mess with our soldiers, if you kill our people, we will retaliate. Put it in perspective. We have the greatest military in the world, and it's a volunteer army. It's a volunteer military. And I think one of the things that I often reflect on is I am a 9-11 child. I was, I came of age during 9-11. And so all my generation knows is perpetual war, is serving our country and sacrificing. And so as we talk about sending troops out, as we talk about expanding wars, these are people. These are children. These are sons. These are daughters. These are wives. Brad, uh, you're an Arkansas, a state that is close to West Virginia in terms of the percentage of people uh, who are veterans and who go into military service. Uh, how should we be thinking about uh, U.S. forces? I, I would say that this isn't just three individuals. These are three families and three communities. So many of my high school friends, I, I was a senior in high school when 9-11 happened. You know, we signed up for the selective service, but so many went right into serving. Um, and, and, you know, I think a lot of times people go into the military for a way of life, but in this situation, it was a call to duty. And I was honored to see a lot of them go over there and serve. But I think the other reminder, too, is this is not just about a retaliation there. It's a strategic, we've got to make these strategic, strategic decisions in the region and keep the region Lan- safe. Lance, quickly. 
I mean, I was thinking, you know, I'm coming down pretty hard on the president, but it's got to be one of the most difficult days, yeah. I mean, you know, out there today. That's right. That's right. Uh, Mick, Mick Mulvaney, uh, uh, last word goes to you. Uh, what should we be keeping in our hearts? What should we be thinking about as we go into this weekend? Oh, just uh, if you say if you're the praying type, pray tonight that things don't get out of hand. Pray that this worked. Um, and that we don't end up with more faces up on the board next week or two weeks or three weeks from now. But Alien is right. By the way, I thought that's one of the best 30-second sort of history pieces I've heard in a long time. We we live in relatively peaceful times, and we should be thankful for that. But there's a cost to doing that. Mick, Lance, Eliana, Michael, Brad, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Uh, uh, we're going to take a quick break. But after the break, I will be joined by my friend and colleague, Leland Vittert. He's the host of On Balance. And we're going to talk about these strikes, and he's going to bring some of his expertise to bear. Stay with us. News Nation's Morning in America is now on the weekends, too. Every Saturday and Sunday at 7 Eastern, wake up with anchor Hannah Doba. This is so exciting. Start your weekend off right with Morning in America, 7 Eastern, 6 Central, only on News Nation. Welcome back. Here with me now to discuss the U.S. airstrikes in Iraq and Syria. And the whole picture is Washington chief correspondent uh, and anchor... Uh, of On Balance, my friend Leland Vittert. And Leland, when it comes to things like this, moments like this, uh, I rely on your expertise because you log the time in Israel, you've spent the time in the, in the Middle East, and the number one thing I was thinking, I knew I was going to get to talk to you, was what do you think the reaction in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv is to this? Do, what, wh- how, how do you think this is playing there? In Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, uh, they believe that the United States does not have a clear-eyed view of the danger of the Iranian regime and what the Iranian regime is willing to do. And I think that this reemphasizes that point to them, that this administration is unwilling to raise the ante with the Iranian regime and uh, views a policy of restraint uh, much, as much more effective than a policy of deterrence. So the, when we think about the uh, marine barracks uh, in Beirut, we think about uh, these other uh, signal moments, these pivot moments. Is this one of those no. moments? No, this is, this will, this Sa- is. Sadly, sadly not. This will just go on. The, this the will, road goes on from here. This will go on, and uh, the Iranians may step back for a minute if they think they can get something from the Biden administration. Uh, and then you will reinforce to them that they can continue to do things without a major price 